Welcome to QuackCast 34. It's been four months since I last did one of these. This is September 15th, 2009, and I haven't done this since May. The start of the golf season meant the end of the QuackCast season, I suppose. But now the flu season is here, perhaps I'll get more time as I'm home with my influenza doing more QuackCasts. I don't feel like repeating the old intro, so if you want to listen to the old intro listen to an old podcast. First, some business. I would like to thank all the kind people at the amazing meeting who had such nice things to say to me at the SBM conference. It was more than a little odd to have complete strangers ask for your autograph and photo. I was completely nonplussed by the attention, and I need to put in my skill set the ability to talk to people who know a lot about me, and I know nothing about them. It's an uneven footing. Third, If you want more of me, and who doesn't, I was interviewed on the Bullocks podcast and the Cosmic Tea Party podcast. Second, I was told I would be interesting if I read the phone book. So that's the topic of today's podcast, the Portland, Oregon phone book. First page is the letter A. Just kidding. The topic of this podcast is Flu Woo for You, Boo Boo, in which we try to be more informed than the average bear. The last several years, I've seen an increase in issues related to influenza, both the bird flu and now the novel H1N1 strain, mistakenly and unfortunately called swine flu. As I finish writing on the second week of September 2009, there have been 1,380 cases of H1N1 admitted to the hospital with 196 deaths in the United States. The number of real milder cases is unknown, but estimates are in the upper hundreds of thousands to low millions, and it looks like it's about to take off this week as there's been a sudden spike in influenza with all the kiddies going back to school. It does, however, look like the world has avoided a disastrous pandemic like the 1919 flu, which killed off maybe 2-5% to of the world. For now, maybe. I hope. H1N1 looks like it will be causing more morbidity than mortality, And if the population is unprotected by a vaccine, perhaps this will be more seasonal flu with only, and I love that, only 30,000 deaths attributed to H1N1, which is what we kill off every year in the United States with cars or guns. However, the flood of nonsense about flu far exceeds the infection rates of H1N1. This podcast will be limited by necessity. The quantity of quackery far exceeds my ability to type and to talk. I thought that influenza virus replicated and spread fast. It pales next to the flu woo. First up, the conspiracy loons. The loons are out again. I feel like I'm back in Minnesota. I can't say theorists or truthers because theory and truth, at least to the best of my understanding, apply to reality. And the conspiracy loons are totally on another planet. One form of the conspiracy suggests that the new strain of influenza could not have happened naturally, that it has to have been manufactured by the government. Quote, the latest bioterrorism attack by the New World Order, I used to listen to New World a lot when I was in college, is likely a beta test. Yes, it is a bioterrorism attack. It was a hybrid strain created from human, swine, and bird flu from North America, Europe, and Asia. It was created in a laboratory. 
this does not happen in nature, end quote. But it does happen in nature all the time. Making a new flu for you is what the flu do. Sorry, I got carried away again by the rhymes. It is the modus operandi of the influenza virus. Now for some basic biology. There are lots of flus. There's human flu and swine flu and bird flu and cat flu and dog flu and even horse flu. The flu can make you horse and the horse can get flu. And the flu is different from most viruses in that it can jump species. So a bird flu can infect a pig and a human flu can infect a pig. And a pig flu can infect, well, a pig. I am glad I am not a pig. By the way, while one of the reservoirs of future subtypes of influenza are the pig, they are not a major source of flu in people. People are a major source of flu in people, and it is spread by coughing. Why do you think, by the way, the doctor has you turn your head and cough? You turn your head not to make the hernia more palpable, but you do it so you do not cough on your doctor, a residual from the times when tuberculosis was more common. Coughing is an extremely effective way to spread infection, rivaled only by sex. If someone coughs on you while you're having sex, you're as good as dead. So killing all your swine, as they did in Egypt, is not going to help stop the spread of H1N1. However, I have tripled my bacon consumption in an attempt to keep the swine reservoir smaller. I think this is going to make me talk like Barbara Walters. Now, the other difference between influenza and most other viruses is the influenza is RNA. It is in segments. Usually a virus has one long piece of DNA or RNA, but influenza has seven or eight, depending on the strain, segments of RNA. So if a pig is simultaneously infected with a bird, a pig, and a human strain of influenza, when it reassembles itself, it can take a few segments of pig RNA, a little bit of human flu RNA, and a few segments of bird influenza RNA, much like what occurred in Frankenstein, and voila, you have a new strain of flu constructed from the parts of other flus. And, like Frankenstein's monster, it can go berserk, killing and maiming. It happened in 1919, infecting half the world and killing, as I said, 5%. Or, soothed by the violin music of vaccination and Tamiflu, the monster can be calmed and hurts no one. This happened in 1976, and hopefully 2009. I like to consider myself a one-man peasant mob, armed with a pitchfork and a burning torch, ready to... Hell, let's move on. I have overdone this metaphor. But what you get are new strains from genetic reassortment, what we call in the biz genetic shift. There is no prior immunity in the population when there's a genetic shift, so the disease can spread rapidly and, if an aggressive strain, kill. This genetic shift has occurred regularly in history, and we are somewhat overdue for a pandemic strain of influenza. You cannot predict in advance when the genetic shift will occur, and when it shifts, if the new strain has the right combination of virulence, the ability to kill, and infectivity, the ability to spread, to cause a catastrophic pandemic. Avian flu, H1N5, is virulent, but currently not infectious in humans. The H1N1 seems infectious, but not all that virulent. Let us hope that those two strains do not meet in a pig somewhere, reassort their genes, and give us what I like to call the Hannah Montana flu with the best of both worlds. May I have teenage kids. With virulence and infectivity. That, quote, this doesn't happen in nature, unquote, is completely, totally, 100% wrong. 
The production of new strains of influenza goes back forever, or at least to 1890, and will continue into the future. Now, why would the evil government release such a virus into the world? Evidently, some think the world is run by Ra's al Ghul, and the purpose of releasing the flu is to decrease overpopulation. Yes, the world is overpopulated. So our secret overlords have made a new strain of flu and have released it upon an unsuspecting world to thin the herd. Now, if it were my goal to decrease the world population, influenza would be the last virus I would choose as a bioweapon. It only, I love the only, if you're dead, you're not an only. But the H1N1 kills about 0.6% of those infected. If I wanted to kill off the world, I would be competent enough to make a strain of flu that was, I don't know, lethal? And rather than starting the infection in Mexican pig farmers, I would release it in the naked mole rat warrens of Chicago O'Hare Airport to ensure maximal rapid spread. The other argument is that H1N1 has been released into the population to cull the herd, not to decrease the population, but to control health care costs by killing off those most at risk for consuming health care dollars, the sick and the elderly. The problem is that the group most at risk for dying from H1N1 are those less than 60 and healthy. It turns out that about 40% of the population born before 1950 has protective antibody against H1N1. So if you were trying to control costs by killing those most at risk, this is the wrong strain of flu. Not only is it relatively non-lethal, it kills off those who have little impact on health costs and whose labor supports the current system. H1N1 mostly kills young people and children. Of course, the government is incompetent, so leave it to them. Do it all wrong. Of course, the real reason that H1N1 has been released is to set the stage for widespread panic so the U.S. can crack down on the population and turn the government over to the U.N., although just how this is supposed to happen is never really said, but they do say it. Now, as the chair of our Infection Control Committee, the hospital bylaws give me, in cases of emergency, the powers to do damn near anything I please to control infection. I can isolate patients, shut down hospital wings, and send people home. And I've had the opportunity to do all the above, but I never do it by myself. At least in the hospital, we work with consensus. You don't close down a hospital wing lightly. States have long had the power to compel people in infectious disease emergencies. I remember, and I'm sure some of you will be appalled, as a resident, we had a person with cavitary, i.e. very infectious tuberculosis, refused medications and was also homeless and crazy. As a public health risk, she was basically incarcerated in the hospital, tied down, and forced to take TB medications. It was not fun. It is an interesting question to what extent the state will compel patients in the case of widespread contagion. Hopefully, they will not respond to H1N1 like the Italians did the bubonic plague and brick people up in their houses, presumably with a cask of Amontillado. But it is the case that our legislatures, generally being ignorant of things medical and scientific, will pass stupid laws. Don't be surprised. I personally see the need for these laws as history of plagues demonstrates that people do not necessarily exhibit their best behavior nor act rationally in an epidemic. Fortunately, as this strain of flu is not usually fatal, calmness will probably prevail and we will not be turning our government over to the UN at any time in the near future. 
The combination of a lack of knowledge of history and biology is astounding in these websites. As I mentioned above, flu changes constantly. One of these years, maybe this one, maybe in 25 years, there will be a perfect storm of a new strain of flu with both high infectivity and high virulence to which the world lacks immunity and a lot of people will die. It did not occur in 76, it may not occur in 2009, but like earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, and taxes, a pandemic will happen again. The other reason this strain of influenza is alleged to have been released into the wild was because Big Pharma needs to sell more drugs and vaccines. This has two variations. The first is that the swine flu is a natural phenomenon that Big Pharma is taking advantage of to sell more drug. Well, duh. But Big Pharma are pikers compared to the Woosites for pushing their anti-flu nostrums, often while complaining about the avarice of the makers of Tamiflu. Just check out the prices of vitamin D or echinacea at your local wonk sites. Just remember that I, like most other doctors, do not make dime one from the drugs we prescribe or the vaccines that we give. Many of the scam proponents aggressively sell products with huge markups of their own products to line their pockets. And we MDs are considered the unethical ones. The other is that the virus was deliberately released by the government to allow Big Pharma to take advantage of the pandemic to sell more Tamiflu. One website refers to the swine flu as the Big Pharma bailout. And I can't even begin to wrap my mind around the idea that H1N1 is a joint effort of the Mexican drug cartels and Al-Qaeda to accomplish some nefarious scheme or other. All conspiracy ideas are, at their core, incomprehensible to me when tested against reality. So many conspiracies that the government is involved in. Bigfoot cover-up, UFO cover-up, Kennedy assassination cover-up, alternative medicine cover-up, moon landing cover-up, 9-11 cover-up, on and on and on. How they find time to be involved in so many secret projects and still get the mail delivered, I will never understand. You do not need a conspiracy theory to understand why one frets when a new influenza starts. Reality is far more depressing. What's always interesting about alternative medicine and the flu sites is often they are mutually exclusive in their ideas. There's another oddness in many of the flu woo sites in saying that the swine flu of 1976 is the same swine flu of 2009. The argument is that since swine flu in 1976 didn't spread or kill, and the 1976 vaccine was more dangerous than the disease, we should not worry about the swine flu of 2009, and we should avoid vaccines as the current swine flu vaccine will behave in the same way. The two swine flus are not the same. They are different strains altered over time and already are manifesting different pathogenicities. The swine flu strain of 1976 never became infectious and did not spread beyond Fort Dix, New Jersey. The 2009 swine flu seems to be spreading quickly around the world and has an infectivity rate in families of around 25%. It's also causing mild to moderate disease in most people. It also appears that rather than being a new strain, this is a direct descendant of the H1N1 of 1919. It is thought that the, in 1919, this influenza entered the pig population at the same time it infected humans, although pigs had a much less severe disease in 1919, and has been circulating in the pig population ever since, evidently attenuating its virulence. 
saying that this strain is not the same strain as 1976 and we need do nothing special is not rational. Flu farms. Equally irrational would be to say that it is the equivalent of the 1919 strain and reacting accordingly. I do feel pity for those that have to make a decision on how to react to a potential pandemic. It doesn't pan out. They look like overreacting fools. If it recapitulates 1919, everyone will call for their heads. Some websites that blame the factory farms for the outbreak. Quote, to understand how this happens, you have to compare two farms. My grandparents had a pig farm in the Swiss mountains with around 20 swine at any one time. What happened there if, in the bowels of one of the pigs, a virus mutated and took on a deadlier form? Well, influenza doesn't start in the bowel. At every stage, the virus would meet stiff resistance from the pig's immune system. They were living in fresh air, on a diet they evolved with and without stress, so they had a robust ability to fight back. If the virus did take hold, it would travel only as far as the sick hog could walk. So if the virus could have been around 20 other pigs to spread and mutate before it would hit the end of its own evolutionary path and die off. If it was a really lucky plucky virus, it might make it to market, where it would come up against more healthy pigs living in small herds. It has little opportunity to fan out across large populations of pigs and evolve a strain that could be transmitted to humans. Now compare this to what happens when a virus evolves in a modern factory farm. In most swine farms today, 6,000 pigs are crammed snout to snout, which is not physically possible, in tiny cages where they can barely move and are fed for life on an artificial pulp while living on top of cesspools of their own stale feces. Instead of having just 20 pigs to experiment and evolve in, the virus now has a pool of thousands constantly infecting and reinfecting each other. The virus can combine and recombine again and again. The ammonia from the waste they live on burns the pig's respiratory tracts, make it easier yet for the viruses to enter them. Better still, the pig's immune system are in free fall. They are stressed, depressed, and permanently in panic, making them far easier to infect. There is no fresh air or sunlight to bolster the natural powers of resistance. They live in an air thick with viral loads, and they are now exposed every time they breathe in. End quote. It's a nice story, but it ignores influenza biology. Factory farms are probably the reason new strains of flu do not originate in the United States. You get new strains not when influenza mutates, the aforementioned genetic drift, but when it gets DNA from reassortment, the shift. And this occurs when humans and pigs and birds live in close proximity, like the small farms found throughout Southeast Asia. Besides, the 1919 pandemic preceded the rise of factory farms, and the record of pandemics stretches far into our agrarian past when the world is full of eco-friendly, stout gentlemen farmers working as one with Mother Earth. I am personally bitter about Rousseau and that whole noble savage myth, but that's another rant. We are overdue for a good pandemic. If factory farming were to blame, I suppose we should have had more rather than fewer pandemics last century. It could be argued that the dense pig populations lead to less infectious, less virulent organisms, as crowding helps facilitate the spread of virus and the organism has no reason to become highly virulent and is more likely, in fact, to become attenuated. Rapidly killing your host is not an efficient way to spread. 
Factory farms have many infectious disease issues, but helping them evolve new hypervirulent flu is probably not one of them. Prevention. What can you do to prevent the flu? Well, wash your hands often and well. Easy enough. Infected secretions are on the phone. Thank Golden Girl Frencham here. You touch the phone, and by the magic of the finger, it is transferred to your mouth or nose, and you can get influenza. Nobody seems to object to good hand washing. But masks? Masks are an interesting question. Do masks prevent flu? Well, that counterfeit masks do not. Our pharmacist informs me that counterfeit N95 masks are coming into the country. But let's say you have a real N95 mask. Will it work? Interestingly, the data to support N95 masks to prevent viral infections is not that good. Most of the data is from surrogates or from other similarly sized viruses. Is there clinical data to suggest that N95s will prevent flu? Not that I can find. It should work, but should is not will. A surgical mask, which is used to prevent the surgeon from dribbling into your wound, lets about 20% of viral particles through. An N95 lets 5% through if properly used. If I were being exposed to infection that was spread in part by breathing it in, I would prefer to inhale 5% of the potential infection rather than 100%. Whether it would be enough to prevent the acquisition of H1N1 will depend on how infective the strain is and how many viral particles you suck into your lungs. If you want to make sure that you are not exposed to flu, you can use the Clinton method. Don't inhale. Or put a plastic bag over your head. That's a joke, by the way. I can just see some doof putting a plastic bag on their head to prevent influenza. All the things you do in medicine are incremental. And we recognize in medicine that the benefits are incremental. No single prevention is going to be 100% effective in the prevention of influenza. However, the more things you do to prevent flu, the closer you get to 100% efficacy. Are masks 100%? No. Are they 100% worthless? No. The truth lies somewhere in between. Masks are not a panacea, but in medicine, no single intervention is. This is contrasted with the woo therapies, which are often touted as the one true flu therapy or flu preventative. Currently, every known nostrum possible is offered to combat influenza instead of Tamiflu. As the natural news says, and that's always good for a laugh, quote, since swine flu is only a few weeks old, it is impossible for any substance to yet have any, quote, scientific evidence of efficacy, including government-recommended antiretrovirals like Tamiflu. Technically speaking, there is zero credible scientific evidence that Tamiflu works to treat swine flu infections either. Where are the studies, the scientific papers? There are none, precisely because swine flu is too new to have been carefully studied by anyone, end quote. And this is true, technically. At a technical level, on some days my whole practice is unproven. There is zero credible evidence, at least by natural news standards, that antibiotics might work for a particular infection. I know the organism, say H1N1. I know what the organ that's infected is, say the lung. I know whether in the lab the infection is susceptible to a given antibiotic, say Tamiflu. And I know if similar organisms are susceptible in that space, and I can alter the course of the infection with antibiotics, like occurred with prior influenza strains. Based on biologic plausibility and the infectious disease law of similars, 
Take that, Mr. Hahnemann. Tamiflu should be effective. This line of reasoning is not limited to Tamiflu. For example, I have a patient with an MRSA hip infection who is allergic to vancomycin. There is no series of MRSA in hips with similar comorbidities, say diabetes, treated with any of the alternative agents for MRSA. Yet, oddly enough, I expect her to respond to the antibiotic because we have a long track record of knowing if it's susceptible in the test tube, it'll probably work in our patients. The natural news continues, quote, I am not against Tamiflu. It is a very effective antiretroviral drug thanks to the fact that it is derived from a natural antiviral herb. If I were infected with swine flu and offered some Tamiflu, I'd take it too, end quote. The naturalistic fallacy in full display. Tamiflu's origin has nothing to do with its efficacy. It is effective because chemists have modified schemic acid from the Chinese star anise, which should be pronounced anus given how it tastes, to a molecule that specifically interferes with the influenza viral neuraminidase. It is the end result of 13 steps that massively alters the structure of the molecule, and it is a wonder that the natural news approves of its naturalness. Chinese star anus, I'm sorry, anise, being in short supply, chemists have developed at least three ways of bypassing the need for schemic acid completely. Will the result in Tamiflu be rendered ineffective because it is no longer derived from a natural product? I doubt it. As an aside, as best I can determine, there are no intrinsic antiviral effects from schemic acid on the influenza virus. It's shikimic. I mispronounced it wrong, and I do not want to go back and redo it. It's shikimic acid. Ugh. The argument from natural news appears to be that since plants are infected with viruses and therefore have antiviral defenses, by consuming plants, you get the benefit of the plant antiviral molecules. This would be a good reason to smoke cigarettes if humans could be infected with the tobacco mosaic virus. But we aren't. A plant has no biologic reason to have a specific anti-influenza molecule like a neuraminidase inhibitor because plants are not infected with influenza. Something about not having uh, a lung? Some flu is interesting, like homeopathy or enemas or detox. If you're getting a respiratory virus in your colon, you have greater issues to worry about than the need for colonic detox. There's blood electrification and colloidal silver and a huge list of herbal products. What does the medical literature say about scams in the treatment of influenza? There are a smattering of studies that evaluated these products for the prevention and treatment of influenza. We'll start with the homeopathic remedy, Oscilcoxium, which has to be the oldest and most popular nostrum, specifically suggested for influenza. This is a homeopathic preparation of duck liver and heart that has been allowed to auto-lice for 40 days. Really, they stick these things in a test tube and let it liquefy. This preparation has an odd history, even for homeopathic remedies. Joseph Roy, a French physician during the Spanish flu of 1917, examined the blood of influenza patients under a microscope, and he saw, quote, a bacterium that consisted of two unequal balls that performed a quick vibratory motion. Roy called them oscillococci, end quote. To me, it sounds like he was seeing Brownian motion artifact of an oil immersion microscope. 
there are no oscillococci. They are the inrays of homeopathy. He found these oscillococci in every disease he examined and concluded they were the cause of everything from flu to eczema. Since oscillococci were found in every disease, a homeopathic preparation would be the universal cure for all disease. And here is how it is made. Quote, Since 1925, oscillococcium has been prepared as follows. Into a one-liter bottle, a mixture of pancreatic juice and glucose is poured. Next, canard de barbary, which is a specific duck, is decapitated, and 35 grams of its liver and 15 grams of its heart are put into the bottle. Why liver? Dr. Roy writes, The ancients considered the liver as the seat of suffering, and more important than the heart, which is the very profound insight, because it is on the level of the liver that the pathological modifications of the blood happen, and also there is a quantity of energy in our heart muscle that changes in a durable manner, end quote. Say what? After 40 days in the sterile bottle, the liver and heart disintegrate into a kind of goo which undergoes a homeopathic dilution, end quote. It is diluted to 200 C. I'm not going to put all the zeros down that that recommends, but the known universe is not large enough to hold one dilute atom to that degree. Now, I thought that homeopathic treatments were individualized, except when they are not, as in the case of oscillococcium. One wonders, since the oscillococci are non-existent, how duck liver heart adheres to the like-cures-like manifesto, since neither the duck heart nor the duck liver, although delicious, cause flu symptoms. How does it work? Should it work? As a remedy, it violates the principles of both real medicine and magical homeopathy. And there actually has been money wasted on clinical trials on this product. And for the sake of brevity, I will quote the ever-popular Cochrane Review. Quote, Seven studies have included in the review three prevention trials and four treatment trials. Only two studies reported sufficient information to complete data extraction fully. Gee, they're doing crappy trials. What a surprise. There is no evidence that homeopathic treatment can prevent influenza-like syndrome. Oscillococcium treatment to reduce the length of influenza by 0.28 days, end quote. The Cochrane reviews are always punctilious about language. Patients who receive oscillococcium were better six hours faster. There is no good reason to suggest causality, and while doubtful it is a real effect rather than artifact of clinical trials, is also a duration that is clinically irrelevant. Oscillococcium is certainly worse than Tamiflu, which has relevant re results, decreasing the duration of influenza, as well as, in population, decreasing mortality. But it is why the prevention of influenza, the vaccine, if available, is always better than treatment. Have other herbal products been tested? You betcha. The same lack of efficacy has been found for the following products, which I'm sure to mispronounce as well. P. quiquifolium, Sambucus nigra, Kang Jang, all of which failed to show benefit in the treatment of influenza. Again, from the Cochrane Review, quote, In conclusion, the effectiveness of any complementary and alternative therapy for treating and preventing seasonal influenza is not established beyond reasonable doubt. Of course, that's not needed in law anymore. Current evidence from randomized controlled trials is sparse and limited by small sample sizes, low methodological quality, 
are clinically irrelevant effect sizes. For avian influenza, no data are currently available. These results strengthen conventional approaches for seasonal influenza, end quote. Duh, they did bad studies and real medicine works. Quel surprise. Chinese herbs have also fared badly when evaluated critically. Quote, the present evidence is too weak to support or reject the use of Chinese medicinal herbs for preventing or treating influenza, end quote. Otherwise, trying to find references specific to influenza in various combinations of alternative and complementary medicine clinical trials yields so little research, I am not sure that the natural news would ever suggest them as therapeutic options for H1N1 since there is, quote, zero credible scientific evidence that natural preparations work to treat swine flu infections. I did find one acupuncture article that made me giggle called, quote, Treatment of Fever Due to Exopathic Wind Cold by Rapid Acupuncture from the Journal of Traditional Chinese Medicine. They did is they had 57 people who had fevers from cold, influenza, tonsillitis, and acute bronchitis, and they gave them some rapid needling at a bunch of different acupuncture sites, and their fevers went away, which made me giggle, because all fevers go away. If you do anything to a patient with a fever, shortly thereafter, the fever will be gone. And given the title, I think maybe they were breaking wind? I am not so sure. I'm surprised that acupuncture was not 100% effective since the natural history of fevers is to break. How's about vitamin D? Now, there is no end of the nonsense touted for the prevention and treatment of flu, but there is a very short list of those that have been clinically evaluated and found to have been wanting. I will mention the one piece of advice that may be reasonable with caveats, which is vitamin D. More than an important for bone and calcium metabolism, vitamin D is important hormone for immune function. It has been noted for years that influenza occurs in the winter when the least amount of vitamin D is made from sun exposure. Several studies have demonstrated that people who are low, emphasized low, in vitamin D are at increased risk for viral respiratory infections. Unfortunately, the one study that looked at vitamin D supplementation for the prevention of upper respiratory infections in normal people vitamin D levels were normal, had no benefit despite increasing vitamin D serum levels. Equally, unfortunately, as a, quote, immune booster, unquote, vitamin D does not improve the response to the influenza vaccine. Can influenza be prevented or treated with vitamin D? I don't think so. But don't tell that to Dr. Marshall. The natural news, of course, the source of all things overhyped and under-understood, that was a parallel form that didn't work, is a nice example of vitamin D as a preventative or treatment of influenza that is way overhyped. Again, I'm talking here about deficiency states, however. If you are replete in your vitamin D, there is apparently no immunologic advantage in taking extra, as it seems to be the case with virtually all vitamins. Metaphorically, if the tank is full of gas, you cannot go further by pumping more gas into the tank. Vitamin D deficiency is not uncommon in the northern latitudes, especially in the winter, and in populations who have little sun exposure, like nursing home patients. So, like all deficiency states, it is reasonable to fill the tank with extra vitamin D. It will probably decrease your chance of getting a viral respiratory infection, but it may have no benefit against the acquisition of influenza. And in general, supporting data is limited, the effect is small, as one review points out. How about vitamin D specifically for influenza? 
Well, the data, as I said, is limited and mostly epidemiologic, but it is interesting nonetheless. The Natural News, which states, quote, in the realm of peer-reviewed medical literature, searching Google Scholar for, quote, influenza, unquote, and vitamin D, unquote, reviews tens of thousands of results. Interestingly, using influenza and dental floss for search terms on Google Scholar results in over 1,500 articles. Google Scholar is not a source for peer-reviewed literature. If you use PubMed, the source for peer-reviewed literature, there are 30 references, not tens of thousands, and less than a half dozen that specifically concern vitamin D and influenza. It is biologically plausible that vitamin D deficiency will increase your risk for infection, and there is reasonable epidemiologic data to support the association, but it is not unreasonable to replete you on vitamin D if you are deficient. But if you're not deficient, well... You're better off taking the vaccine, or if you get the flu, take olcetamivir, i.e. Tamiflu. Vitamin D is not the single most powerful nutrient in the known universe for preventing influenza, despite the hysterics of the natural news. This is yet another example of the penchant for the alternative medicine folks to take a molehill and turn it into a cascade range of mountains. Best bet for the swine flu? Wash your hands, don't inhale, stay away from coffers, and get the vaccine if available. And stay away from lonely pigs. And finally, don't try a pox party. Some parents take their kids to get chicken pox when there is an outbreak in the neighborhood so they have some control over when their children get chicken pox. I will admit to some sympathy for this position in the pre-vaccine era. There is a suggestion that similar parties should be held with swine flu patients. I advise against it. One, you may end up passing flu on to someone less able to contain the disease and they will die. And also, the current strain does not appear that virulent. Some people may, due to the wrong gene set, be predisposed to die from influenza. It's sort of like having a test your airbags of your car party. Let's see how often you can smash a car into a brick wall and set off your airbags and see whether or not you die. Damn, this is a long podcast. If I were you, I would take a break here, go do something else, and come back for the next chapter on influenza mutation. Today on the morning news program, Wake Up and Panic America, or some such show that my wife had on as we prepared for work, I heard the newscaster solemnly assure the American people that the flu had, quote, not mutated yet, unquote was not yet able to kill people. One wonders why Americans are less than knowledgeable about science when such a phrase, incorrect in general and in specifics, seems to be a stock phrase on the television. Of course influenza is mutating. Viruses, like humans, are sloppy at reproduction, but in a different way. Millions of viruses are being made, and there is the slow, inevitable genetic drift that ensures that the strain at the beginning of the flu season will be slightly different than the strain at the end of the season. This happens, as I have said above, every year in every strain of flu forever. What the flu does not usually do is mutate towards any goal, like increased virulence. If, as mentioned above, the Hannah Montana strain is produced in some pig somewhere, that will not be a mutation any more than my children are a mutation of me. An exception to this may be the avian flu. The current bird flu prefers to bind to alpha-2,3 linked sialic acids. Big deal. These are sugars. They are only found deep in the lung. 
whereas human influenza binds preferentially to alpha-2-6, not 3, 6, linked sialic acids, which are found in the upper airway. So the reason you get regular flu but not bird flu is the place they bind is in the upper airway. It is a worry with the bird flu that simple mutations could change its preference from the lower airway sialic acids to the upper airway sialic acids with a marked increase in potential infectivity. But right now, this organism is having a happy time killing birds and has no real reason to mutate to infect humans. There's no reason to suspect that H1N1 is going to evolve one way or the other, and as long as it's spreading nicely through the population, it has no reason to become a super virus. Another variation on the mutation theme is that the use of the vaccine is counterproductive. Use of the vaccine will lead to a superbug. I have found this on the webs and in a letter from SBM, and I can only speculate where this idea originates. Now, antibiotics can breed resistant bacteria, and resistant organisms are often referred to as superbugs. The resistant organisms may not necessarily be more virulent. Just because the bacteria may be harder to kill with antibiotics doesn't necessarily mean it's more invasive. Sometimes, like the current strain of methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, there may be a high incidence of the organism carrying genes that increase its virulence. However, as best I can tell, the increased virulence genes of the USA 300 strain of MRSA are independent of its antibiotic resistance. There was an interesting report in clinical infectious diseases, for example, that suggests that antiretrovirals for HIV is making the HIV more virulent. This can happen also as a result of antibiotics, but is unpredictable. Certainly, if you markedly decrease a pathogen in the community with vaccines, those who would have died in the past are more likely to survive and pass their susceptibility on to their offspring, increasing the vulnerability of the population to severe disease. If you put the words toll, T-O-L-L, and infection and polymorphism into PubMed, you will find the growing literature on the genetic susceptibility for getting and dying of various infections. Historical epidemiology out of Utah suggests that the risk of death from influenza is in part inheritable. You don't inherit the wind, you inherit the influenza. So what you might expect is, after a long-term vaccine use that allows for the accumulation of susceptible hosts in a population, if there is a decline in the vaccine use, there will be an increase in the morbidity and mortality when the disease returns in a more susceptible population. It may not be due to a superbug so much as a susceptible population, and the increase in death is less due to the organism and more to the host. So can vaccine-induced immunity lead to a superbug? Well, it hasn't happened yet. It does have some plausibility, and it depends on the virus. Widespread use of the smallpox virus did not lead to a super smallpox. It led to eradication of smallpox. But some viruses, due to sloppy reproduction, as occurs in influenza, can alter their surface proteins, where the antibodies bind, to escape the immune system. So widespread use of the vaccine could, and should, lead to new strains of influenza that avoid the antibody. But then, and here's the key thing, this would happen every year with normal infection. As the flu season progresses, the organism slowly changes its surface protein so that the strain at the end of the season is different, part of why we need a new vaccine every year. However, 
These mutations, as a rule, do not make the organism more virulent. They usually require a, both a genetic shift and bad luck, and this process is not affected by immunity. So it seems unlikely that widespread use of the vaccine would lead to a superbug. You can potentially put immunologic pressure on influenza by two ways, by getting the vaccine or by getting the flu. Both will lead to antibody against the organism, but only one will make you sick and can potentially pass on an infection to others. But both will put some immunologic and identical pressure on the organism to evade the immune system. Hell, I don't care about that. I just don't want the flu to melt my immune system. The reason I do not want to call it the swine flu, besides the fact that it's not really from swine, is that it harkens back to 1976 when we last had a swine flu. I actually want to call it the rotting genitals flu. It may make the vaccine more desirable. But the va with that vaccine, there was a bump in the incidence of Guillain-Barre syndrome, GBS, a disease where the insulation of your nerves falls off, leading to paralysis. This is not a good disease. Now, as I write this on 989, there have been a total of 598 deaths from H1N1. How many cases of Guillain-Barre were there in 1976? 532 cases occurred within 5 to 10 weeks of receiving the vaccine after more than 40 million vaccinations. Why? Nobody knows. And since that time, we have had no further cases of Guillain-Barre associated with influenza vaccine. We don't know why it happened. Was it the strain of flu? Was it how the flu was prepared? Subsequent flu seasons have not seen an increase in GBS. And the current H1N1 is distinctly genetically different from the 1976 strain. And there is no cross-protection from the 1976 strain with the current influenza. So given the strain differences and the improved production of vaccine, there is probably no reason to worry about increased risk of Guillain-Barre with the H1N1 vaccine. Unfortunately, we will not know for sure until we have given about 40 million doses of vaccine. Don't you just love that uncertainty? And that's the problem. As a clinician, I have to deal with uncertainties and probabilities of complex systems. I know, for example, that for every 1,000 people who get flu, 40 may end up in the hospital and one may die. With 300 million Americans, that's 30,000 deaths, standard for flu, and 120,000 hospitalizations. Compare that with 598 cases of Guillain-Barre, which had 25 deaths. That's about as many people who are trampled by cattle each year, but no one wants to avoid steak. And that's always a problem. Maybe 800 lives are saved by airbags each year. They kill maybe 20 people. Numbers vary. So the greater risk is not having airbags, and like many aspects of life, it is not all or nothing. People expect vaccines to be all or nothing, 100% effective, zero risks. Humans are not good at trying to decide what the relative risks are. Odds are far greater that you will get and die from H1N1 than the odds you will get a vaccine-related Guillain-Barre syndrome, even assuming that the vaccine has the same risk of 1976, which it shouldn't. The risk of getting GBS and dying is about the same risk of getting killed by your airbags. But unfortunately, we will not know with certainty until about 2010.
People do not deal well with this kind of uncertainty. As Ed said, quote, Doctors say Norberg has a 50-50 chance of getting the flu, although there's only a 10% chance of that, end quote. Public health and influenza vaccines target populations by treating individuals trying to do the most good for the most number of people. But the real effects of influenza vaccines are on populations, and the more of a population is vaccinated, the better the population does as a whole. People miss part of the point when they say, well, I'm not going to get the vaccine because it only helps the elderly or pregnant woman. It's the old adage of the rising tide lifting all boats. But my sense is that people are more selfish now than they were back in the last century, being unwilling to have two days of a sore arm to potentially prevent the spread of a disease that may kill a stranger. Besides, they're old and they're going to die anyway. Okay, we're at the last section, the last bit, that a new and untested vaccine is being tested on the American public. You know, if you listen to this on an iPod and you use the Enhanced Podcast, all these things are separated into chapters. And you can go from chapter to chapter listening to the section that interests you most instead of having to listen to now 50 minutes of my droning. But is it a new and untested flu vaccine? Well, it is every year. Or more appropriately, it's the same old flu with the same old vaccine. Keeping the car metaphor that we've used above, you're not seeing a new form of transportation, just a new model of the same old car. Now, it takes about nine months to make a flu vaccine. The first three months or so are spent deciding on what strains are to be included and if there are representative strains that grow well for vaccine production. After the strains are chosen, it takes about six months to grow up large quantities of vaccine in chicken eggs. Each dose of vaccine comes from one egg, and there is one chicken that makes all those eggs, and she gets tired and her butt gets sore. Then the vaccine is purified to just its neuraminidase and hemagglutinin proteins, and these are put in the vaccine. The fast track that we are on now for H1N1 vaccine is due to a lucky confluence of factors. First, industry had just finished making this year's seasonal flu vaccine, so they had unexpected capacity to churn out new vaccine. But more importantly, they had a jump on picking the strain. They did not have to guess which of the strains to include because they knew it was H1N1. So that gave them a three-month head start in making the vaccine. That's the main reason that we have H1N1 vaccine in record time. The process of growing the influenza and purifying it is proceeding at the usual pace. We have just been lucky in that we were able to know the exact strain and it occurred when we had the capacity to make extra vaccine. The other nice thing about the H1N1 is since we've been able to pick the vaccine perfectly, we would expect excellent response to the vaccine. And the recent New England Journal article suggests that 95% of people should have protective antibody after one dose. So while it is being produced at a faster rate, it is not because they are skimping on the steps in the production. It is because we got lucky. As an aside, I am told the strain they are using for the vaccine is not the best they could have chosen for growing in chicken eggs and is part of the reason why the vaccine will not be ready until mid-October. Evidently, it does not like to grow as robustly in chicken eggs as they would like. As far as anyone can tell, there is nothing special about the H1N1, and they have looked at this strain very closely to suggest that there is anything special about it except that it is new at least since the 1950s, 
than the last H1N1 progenitors were seen in human beings. As an aside, it turns out that 40% of people born before 1950 have protective antibody against this strain of H1N1. So it's been around for a while. It's been causing disease in the past, and patients did not get increased Guillain-Barre in the past. This strain is only new to people born since about 1950, which is billions of people who are at risk with no immunity. But as far as virulence and antigenicity, this appears to be the same old influenza reasserting its RNA to come up with new strains as it always has done and always will do as long as birds, pigs, and people are around to get influenza. H1N1 is fundamentally the same as any other flu that we have been making vaccine against for as long as we have been making vaccine. It is undergoing the same testing we have used every year, and there is no reason to suspect that we should be doing otherwise. But anyway, I am nervous. Fall is coming. H1N1 may already be starting its comeback. And pandemics, which have swept the world in the past, can sweep the world several times with one strain of flu. The 1919 pandemic may have had three passes through the world before it disappeared. And if we get a lot of flu before a vaccine, we could be in a world of hurt. Not a lot of deaths by U.S. standards. As I say, we lose 30,000 every year to guns or car accidents, so we're used to having our citizens die of preventable problems. But I have spent a career watching people suffer and occasionally die of potentially preventable infectious diseases. I am not a fan of death by infection. So I really hope that the vaccine is widely available and widely used so people do not have to die from influenza, but get to live to die at a later date by a parachute not opening. That's a way to die. Getting caught in the gears of a combine. Having your nuts spit off by a Laplander. That's the way I want to go. But I digress. By the way, if you go to the Gavit Opus on iTunes and listen to podcast number eight, you can hear my rendition of a budget of dumbasses, the 12 reasons you are a dumbass for not getting seasonal flu. So that's it. Quackcast 34. At 54 minutes, 13 seconds, I am one verbose bastard, I'll tell you. As always, the references are available on the website. Feel free to participate in my multimedia empire. Listen to my PusCast, my Gavado Pus. Read my infectious disease blog over at Medscape. Read my writings on sciencebasedmedicine.org. Because, as you know, the world needs more Mark Chrislop. As always, I read all the email, and I virtually never answer it. I think I have 1,584 emails unanswered on Gmail right now. I hate answering email. But thank you all for listening, and I will see you next time on the QuackCast.